Okay, but last week uh, we were in Matthew 16, went through verse 12. <clears throat> if you could use one word to describe last week's teaching, what would it be? that would be accurate? Hypocrisy. So what did I assert? Well, obviously we know from Luke 12 that the, the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy, and the doctrine of the Pharisees to beware of is hypocrisy. Didn't say in Luke 12 that it was the Sadducees too, but I'm, I'm asserting to you the, Pharise- the doctrine, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees was hypocrisy. And we are to beware of this. Be very careful how we walk. We're not being hypocrites. Not only to our own detriment, but to the detriment of others who are watching. And uh, hypocrites, uh, they fool themselves. And, you know, Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7, that, that many in the last day will say, Lord, we've done this, that, this, and that. They'll say, away from me, you do, I never do you. You know, self-delusion is probably one of the greatest dangers that any person could have. Be deluded to think that they're a Christian because they're doing certain things. But in all actuality, they've never been a Christian. Or maybe they were at one point in time, but they aren't now. Um, And those who are hypocrites were deluded. A lot of them in the scriptures who Jesus talked to were self-deluded. They thought they were okay with God. They thought they were following Moses. But Jesus said, if you followed Moses, you would, you would listen to me. If he spoke about me, you would follow me. And so we have to be very careful uh, that we're not being deluded as well. So we always need to search our own hearts and ask God to search our hearts uh, to make sure that we're not in this delusion. Be blameless before the world and blameless before God. <clears throat> Okay, let's read verse 13 through verse 27 today. Um, that's from Thessalonians, I believe. It's talking about the last days. And I think the delusion it's talking about there is the mark of the beast. Yeah, I mean, these people... You have to keep in mind there, I mean... I think if you look at Revelation, that the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, we have Elijah, the actual Elijah, and another prophet. We don't know who it is. Could be Moses, could be John, could be Enoch, preaching in Jerusalem for three and a half years, calling down judgments upon nations, and people reject them. Well, they reject them, they reject them, and then they they're they're killed, and they have. Give presents. Here you go. They got killed today. Here's a new holiday. Here's a present for you and you. The day Elijah and what's his name were killed. And so God said, okay, you're going to reject this. Here comes a false prophet who's going to claim to be Elijah. Here comes the false antichrist and they're going to install the mark of the beast. And here's a great delusion. You weren't willing to accept what I gave you. And this is the way God works all throughout history. I mean, you see it with Jesus. He spoke. He did miracles, signs and wonders. Beelzebub. Okay, parables. Let's see what happens now. And those who really want it will come seeking for more. Yeah, so there is great delusion God will send, but he's... 
No, that's not the delusion I'm talking about. Uh, Self-delusion. Yeah, it's a very dangerous thing. Of course, the mark of Isha is a, is a, is a dangerous, great delusion, because once you take that, there ain't no turning back. There's no repentance of that. It's kind of like uh, uh, Esau. He couldn't repent of losing his blessing. He couldn't repent of trading it for a, a bowl of porridge. He couldn't repent of that. It was gone. His father already gave it to his brother. That's it. His birthright was gone. <clears throat> and just like the Mark of says, no repentance of that. Now, there is repentance of self-delusion, though. But only if you become aware of it. And that's the problem with self-delusion. You usually don't become aware of it on your own. Either someone, whether it's a person, a Christian, or a God, has to make you aware of it. And then you can repent of it. Yeah, some people are under self self delusion like that because of what they've been taught. I'm, I'm sure he's probably been in a Baptist church or some yeah, kind. He was Baptist, but he didn't believe it was a free ride still at the same time. Hmm. So he goes to heaven. I don't understand how that works. Interesting. Only he gets a free ride, I guess, huh? Okay, so let's start in verse 13 and go through verse 27. 28 will be with next week's teaching because it goes more along with chapter 17. A whole different part of the teaching. Verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose in heaven will be will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose in, or on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that he should not tell anyone that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, then deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. Okay, so they're in Caesarea Philippi now, which is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, you can see, if you were to look at the back of your map, you'd see it for yourself. And... Um, he asked the disciples this, this question, and people were, he was saying that some were saying it's John the Baptist, which gives some credence to what Herod was saying back in Matthew 14, too. They thought he was John the Baptist, risen from the grave. Uh, why would they think he's Elijah? Maybe because of Malachi 4? I'm not really sure about that, but some people were calling him Elijah. 
Uh, some were saying Jeremiah are prophets. And if you look at Luke 9, in verse 19, where it's talking about the same situation, it adds something to that, one of the prophets risen again. Okay, so these are things that men are saying about Jesus. They obviously weren't getting who he was through his miracles, through his teaching, uh, through his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. They were not getting it. A lot of people were not getting it. So Jesus asked them the question. Let's see if they're going to get it. And he asked this question to all of his disciples. And uh, Simon Peter is the one who speaks up, which isn't always a good thing for him. It's not always a good thing to speak up. <laughs> okay, I, I think I posted this on my Facebook wall recently about how a man who learns how to keep quiet is a good thing. It's not always good to speak up. A wise man knows how to be quiet sometimes, too. Or a wise woman knows how to be quiet sometimes. You know, a wise man isn't, isn't always spouting off knowledge. He knows when to be quiet. Okay? And Peter, obviously, was still learning this. And you can see this in verse, uh, you know, 22. He tries to rebuke Jesus. Now, come on. Come on, Peter. You just, we're about to read what he just said a second ago, and now he's going to rebuke him? Is Jesus really... I mean, we talked about the qualifications for an elder, right? An unrebukable person. Remember we talked about that in First Timothy? Jesus is called the chief overseer. Do you think he's unrebukable? Yeah, I'd say so. But Peter put his foot in his mouth because obviously he misunderstood the Messiah and what he was going to come and do. So he rebuked him. And this is the only person that I, I can say that Jesus said this to. And get behind me, Satan. So we have all these things about Peter here. He's the first, only person to walk on water that we know of. You know, he's basically the, you know, the head apostle. You know, they had the top three with James uh, John and Peter, but he was like really the top one we see throughout Scripture. But he's also the one who got called Satan. He's also the one who denied him three times, who had to be restored by Jesus in John uh, 20 and 21. <clears throat> and so, it's not always a good thing when Peter speaks up. If we go to Luke 9 just for a second. <clears throat> and this is uh, something we're going to read about next week in the Matthew part of it. But this part isn't recorded in the Matthew part. This is when the transfiguration of the mountain is happening. And he, the disciples wake up, and they see Moses and Elijah standing next to Jesus. And in Luke 9.33 it says, Then it happened as they were departing from him, that's Elijah and Moses were parting from Jesus, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles or tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So he's just saying something. He's not even knowing what he's saying. He just... He just has to say something. And uh, this is something that Peter, you know, he puts his foot in his mouth quite often in the, in the, uh, the Gospels. And so he, this is another example of him uh, putting his foot in his mouth. He had, a, he had a problem with that. So not always good that Peter spoke up, but this time it was good that Peter spoke up. He said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And the word bar there just means son of. Okay, his father's name was Jonah or John. Uh, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so no man, including Jesus, uh, had ever taught Peter what he just confessed directly. No one had ever taught Jesus that, but Peter that, what he just confessed directly it was revealed to him by the Father. But here's the question: um, In what way was this revealed to Peter? I mean, think about all. He, go ahead, brother. By the Spirit. 
well, by the Spirit, yeah, I'd say the Spirit's involved in it. But all the things that were going on that Peter was seeing, he was hearing, he was watching, that would have brought him to this point. It's not like he just had no knowledge at all, and all of a sudden some mystical thing happened to him. Oh, you're a Jesus Christ, son of the living God. It was all involuntary on his part. No, he was, he was uh, hearing the preaching of Jesus, even though he didn't hear this direct statement about Jesus. He heard the preaching of Jesus. What did he hear when demonic forces came out of people? Yeah, he heard this from demonic forces. Uh, he saw the miracles of Jesus. All the miracles he did. Uh, including the wind being stilled and walking on water and um, all these things. He heard the parables of Jesus and then he sought for more information. Um, he saw the life of Jesus. How he lived. How he was holy. Uh, he knew the Old Testament scriptures that testify of Jesus. So all these things combined together, and the Spirit of God obviously revealing these things to him, he was able to declare, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what he was able to declare. And this, this wasn't just something that was, declared, that was revealed just to Peter now. Because remember, Jesus is talking to all of them here. It says in verse 13, he's talking to his disciples. In verse 14, so they said, in response to his question. And then in verse, um, uh, end of verse 14, beginning of verse 14, he said to them, but who do you say I am? So he's talking to all the disciples here, and Peter speaks up for them, but none of them disagree with him. So this is revealed not just to Peter, but to all the disciples. They're all getting it. Not just Peter. Okay? Um, and, and to... And this wasn't the first time, Peter wasn't the first person to say this. Uh, let's go to John for a second. And we'll see the first disciple to say something similar to this. We call Jesus the Son of God. <clears throat> it's in John chapter 1, and verse 49. Uh, Philip went and found Nathanael. Nathanael came back, saw Jesus. Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathanael replied with, in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So it wasn't even the first time a disciple had said something like that. Now, he didn't say anything about Messiah there. They called him the Son of God. The Son of God. Definite article there. And if we were to go to Luke, beginning of Luke, we would see that there were two people waiting for the Christ uh, to be born. We'll see it in Luke chapter 2, and verse 25. So, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then he did see him. He circumcised him on the eighth day. And then we see in Anna, in Luke 2, verse 36. There was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, she was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. Someone was a widow of about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke to him of all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. So she saw him as well. Now she's a pretty old gal. She was, you know, married for seven years. I don't know how old she got married. But since she had been, uh, her husband had left her, she was a widow, 
84 years since then. Pretty old gal there. She's been waiting for a while uh, for Jesus to come. So this wasn't, Peter wasn't the first person to declare these kind of things. We see Simeon waiting for the Christ. We see Nathaniel calling him the Son of God. And this was revealed to all the disciples. They were all getting it. They were all understanding it. I also notice from verse 16 to 17 that he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the Son of, of the living God. So he's not just calling Jesus a son in the sense of like the Muslims try to call Jesus a son, where he say, well, he's just a son just like you and I are sons. No, the son. I mean, if everyone's a son of God in that sense, why would he even declare that as part of the declaration here? He's the son, the unique son, the only begotten son of God, John 3.16 says. Uh, and then Jesus um, says at the end of verse 17, my father who is in heaven. Okay, so there's, there's some possession there, and this, this is some good scripture for the Trinity, I think. If you're looking to understand the Trinity, approve the Trinity, there's some good stuff there. Now, in verse 18, he says, And I also say to you that you are Peter. Now, in the Greek, this is Petros. It means stone. Okay? It means pebble or stone. And he says, uh, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, the word for rock there is Petra, which means bedrock, massive rock formation. So it seems to me that Jesus is doing a play on words here. You are Petros, stone, little pebble, little rock, and I'm on this Petra, this bedrock, this massive rock formation, I will build my church. Okay? Now is the church being built upon a man? Okay, we'll look at it here in a second, but... Some Roman Catholics would have you believe that the, the second rock talked about here is referring back to Peter once again. In the Greek, you see Petrus in the masculine, Petrus in the feminine. Okay, so I don't think it can refer to Peter for, one of the, for that reason. And secondly, using two different words. Now, I listened to some de debates recently uh, between a Roman Catholic and uh, uh, James White about this issue, about this, uh, uh, this Matthew 16 passage, and among other things about Peter being the first pope or not. And uh, he says, one of his objections to James White bringing that up, that this Petra, Petros thing, is that the original language they would have been speaking would have been Aramaic, which I believe is true. They wouldn't have been speaking to each other in Greek, even though the New Testament was originally written in Greek. They wouldn't be speaking in Greek. Uh, in Aramaic, there is no differentiating between the terms. It would be the same term being used in both says. But the fact of the matter is, even though that may be true, in the Greek, for some reason, the Holy Spirit who's behind Matthew's writing here, decided to use two different terms. The Holy Spirit didn't do that on accident. There's some kind of purpose behind it here. Okay? And <clears throat> I believe that it's referring back to his confession here. You see in verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ himself, and the confession you make in him. And by confessing him that same thing, you are the Christ, Son of the living God, you're becoming a part of that building, one of those living stones. Uh, the script talk, we'll look at that here in a second. Uh, so what, what is the church built upon? Is it built upon Peter? Well, let's look at Ephesians 2. Let's look at some of these scriptures that they, the Roman Catholics try to bring out to supposedly support uh, that Peter is the foundation or the rock which the church was built upon. And from that, they tried to say that, Jesus was the, that Peter was the first pope, and that all the succession of the popes that come from him are also the rock, too. Okay, so Ephesians 2 and verse 19. 
Now therefore you, that's the Gentiles there, by the way, therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So the foundation of the apostles and prophets, apostles plural here, and prophets plural, not Peter himself, and who is the chief cornerstone? It's Christ. But he, I mean, he's the one who the, the prophets pointed to. He's the one the apostles point to. Now the prophets and apostles teach the doctrines of God, and in that way they are a foundation for the church. Um, but you see, the whole building, we're all stones in this building, being fitted together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, where the dwelling of God in the Spirit is. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit if you're bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're found in Him, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not this building we're meeting in. Not some building that has a cross on top. Okay? Not some building in the Middle East. Where it might be built sometime soon. But you are the temple of, of God. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you if you're a Christian. Okay? So they, you know, they'll try to use these verses here to prove that that Peter is the rock upon the church which the church will be built. But this says apostles and prophets. There's not meaning in the same sense they're trying to make Matthew 16 make. Okay? Uh, so we see that. And then uh, Revelation 21.14. <clears throat> this is talking about the New Jerusalem here. The heavenly city. And earlier on, it, it referred to the city as referring to the people who are coming down from the clouds, the inhabitants of the city. But now it's referring to the city itself. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So even with the city, the New Jerusalem itself, the walls of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of Peter. Was Peter's name on each one? No, it was the 12 apostles. And they are the foundation of the church, of Jesus Christ, because they were the ones that he chose. They were the ones that he said, go out and preach. They were the ones who he gave the doctrine. They were the ones he gave extra insight to. And there were even three out of those 12 who he gave extra, extra insight to, into and spent more, even more time with them. So in that sense, they are the, the foundation for the New Jerusalem, and they are the foundation of the church, along with the prophets. It's not, it's not uh, exclude the, the, the prophets now. The prophets are a part of this foundation now, too. All pointing to Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. We see in Isaiah 28. Let's go there. Once again, proving who the true rock is here. It's Peter, or if it's Jesus. Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, singular there, a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. So there's one stone. The question that becomes, in verse 16, is talking about Peter? It's talking about Jesus. He's a precious cornerstone. Uh, let's go to uh, Acts chapter 4. In verse 10, and let's see what Peter himself said about who the rock is. 
who this cornerstone is. Acts 4 and verse 10. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you hold, the man who Peter just healed. This is the stone. This is the stone. I'm just telling you this. This is the stone which you rejected, which was rejected by the by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus is the stone which became the chief cornerstone. Okay, we see that from Peter's own mouth. We see it from the prophet Isaiah, who were part of the foundation of the church. Is Isaiah the prophet? First uh, Corinthians chapter three. And verse 11, this is Paul addressing this issue, whether it's Paul, Apollo, Cephas, you know, who is the foundation for you, for your faith? This is, in verse 11, for no other foundation can that, than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's saying, it's not about Paul, it's not about Apollo, it's not about Cephas, it's about Jesus Christ. Man, Roman Catholic Church is really getting some things wrong here, aren't they? Let's go to Peter's own writings, First Peter chapter 2. And starting in verse 1. Let's see what Peter says from his own pen. We heard Peter's mouth. We heard the prophets. We heard from Paul. Let's hear from Peter. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word of God, they may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted, the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as a living stone. Also, you're a living stone too. Rejected indeed by men but chosen by God and precious. You'll see, that was talking about Jesus, right? They're a living stone. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion. I think it's referring back to Isaiah 28. In Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But those who are disobedient... The stone which the builder rejected became the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So Jesus is a stone. Jesus is the rock, the chief cornerstone. We are living stones. Part of this building is being built up upon the chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ, the foundation of the prophets and the apostles on which we're built up. But nowhere is Peter called the chief cornerstone. Nowhere is he the rock upon which the church will be built. The rock. Jesus is the rock. What's the first thing you lay when you build a foundation? The cornerstone. He is the rock which the rest of the stones are built upon until we have a whole house in New Jerusalem which the apostle of the pillars of those things. And so we see that throughout scripture that the rock is Jesus and let's just go to the Old Testament for a second, and let's look and see what Moses said, and David said about this rock. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And we'll see even in the Old Testament that this rock is Jesus. 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the song of Moses.
And he says in verse 4, He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. That's not Peter. Sorry, that's not Peter. Second uh, Samuel chapter 22, we'll see a song of David. Second Samuel chapter 22. In verses 2 and 3. And he said, The Lord is my rock, and my fortress, and my deliverer, the God of my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. You know, and, and then the, the water from which the rock came, the, that came from a rock, that rock is Jesus Christ. He's the living water. He's from whom the living water comes from. That's a picture of Jesus Christ as well. When they got fed, they, got given, they were given water in the desert from the rock. Can water really come out of a rock? Is there any so- source of water inside of a rock? Go hit some rocks out here. See if you get any water out of them. And go look at, go watch the documentary about the Exodus where it shows the rock where the water came out of. There's no water source behind it. But Jesus is the rock of living water. He's a source of living water. And so we see the rock is Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. And I think what we've looked at is sufficient to prove them wrong. And I do think there's a play on words here. There is a play on words that's going on here. Now, I will warn you that there are some early church fathers who said that this is attributed to Peter, that he's the rock talking about here. But they never give him the preeminence, the primacy that the Roman Catholic Church does, where he is the leader of the church, he was the first pope or papa, uh, and that the people who come from him are also the popes who are the, the prime leaders of the church. They never say those things in early on in the church. Um, but So either way you go with this rock, and I, I truly think it's a plan on words here. I can't see any other way the Holy Spirit will lead Matthew to use two different words here. It doesn't make any sense to me why he would do that, and then Peter would be in a masculine, and then the rock would be in the feminine. That doesn't make any sense to me why they would do that either. But upon this rock I will build a church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now what does that mean? There's been lots of different uh, interpretations of this. Because King James translated the gates of hell, which will give you a completely different interpretation of this than the gates of Hades. Because what is Hades overall? Not the upper or lower part, but altogether, what is it? He put of death. He defeated death. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's see what it says about death here. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 50. It says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corrupt the corruption inherit incorruption. We all tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the, the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law, 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So for Christians, death has lost its sting. So the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And guess what? We're not under law if we're in Christ, we're under grace. Does that mean sin should have dominion over you? Because you're under grace? Romans 6.14 Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're under grace and under the law. That's what it says. Doesn't mean you're not required to obey God by not being under the law. It means you're not under the condemnation of the law. Because if you're under the law, not under grace, you've broken God's law. No matter how much obedience you do to the law, after you've broken the law, you're still condemned under the law. Because no amount of obedience can forgive you for your disobedience. And we see in 1 Corinthians 15 that when are the dead raised? And why why are they raised last time? Because who comes back? And how many are raised? How many of the saints are raised in that in that passage right there? Just some of them, or is it all of them? Yes, they're all raised. So if you ever get confused in Revelation uh, chapter 20, where it talks about the martyrs being raised in verses 4 through 6, you can know it's not just the martyrs being raised, or those who are beheaded. It's actually all saints being raised. Okay? Scripture interprets Scripture. So the gates of Hades is simply saying that the abode of the dead, or death itself, physical death, can't stop the church. And what do you know, this is one of the greatest allies of the devil, is death. Because what turns more people away from Christianity, what turns more people back to their sins than the threat of death, the threat of torture, the threat of suffering for the name of Jesus Christ? It's the devil's greatest ally. And he will use it to threaten you, to get you to turn back to your sins, to turn back from Jesus Christ, and not trust in him any longer. We have to remember this, friends, that the sting of death is gone when you're in Christ. But if you depart from Christ, the sting of death remains. And what Jesus is saying here is that even martyrdom, one of the devil's greatest weapons, will not prevail against the church. It will not stop the church. There'll be those, there will always be those who prevail and get martyred anyway. No matter how many turn back, there will always be those who say, no, I will not save my life to lose it. I will lose my life to find it. And there's always been a remnant throughout the years. Even when the Roman Catholic Church, had, the teachings had plagued the universal visible church, there was still a remnant there. He was willing to die and he would suffer at the hands of this visible church who persecuted them. And so, and we see in the last days, we see the the uh, the martyrs praying uh, at the throne. When will you avenge our death? Not until the full number of your brethren have come in in this way. And we know from Psalm one sixteen fifteen that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. Precious. The sight of the Lord is death of sin. In fact, what is what is the devil thinks that martyrdom is going to squash out the church? But what does it usually do? Exact opposite. It just grows and grows. And the zeal of the church, they get jealous because they hear of this man who died for Christ and who lived for Him and was willing to lay on his whole life. And they know it's something supernatural. Because no natural man who knows these things are a fable would do such a thing. Right, right. Yeah, there's a big difference between laying down your life and becoming a suicide bomber 
and loving your enemies and laying down your life. I'm reading a book called The Heavenly Man right now. If you haven't read it, I strongly recommend it. Uh, it's about Brother Yun, who was part of the Back to Jerusalem movement that I talked about many times before in the early 80s. Suffered so extremely. I don't know. I mean, so extremely. It's, just, it's, it's hard to read it. And he just kept on going. And miracle after miracle would happen, and God would you know, give him the strength to persevere on the things he endured for Jesus Christ. And I'm only about halfway through. And it just amazes me uh, how God can use this man. He's bringing people to Christ in the prison, his own persecutors, the people who hated him. Uh, I'll just give you one example off the top of my head. He was in a jail. Obviously, he was in jail for preaching the gospel. And the China, the China, China had this program called the uh, Three Self Patriotic Church. And so, you, your church submitted to the government. You're able to do certain things, weren't able to do certain things, but you weren't persecuted. Uh, but the things they were submitting to were ungodly things. They were disobeying God's commands by submitting to these things. Yun wouldn't do that. Uh, so he became part of the underground church there. And he got arrested and uh, for what they considered heinous crimes. And, um, excuse me, <coughs> he was in jail, and all of his cellmates hated him. And they did whatever the people who took care of them told them to do. They would urinate on him. They were thrown into the septic tank, where all the feces was, and uh, he'd get beat up. He'd get tased with electrical tasers. Uh, he'd get beat with steel-toed boots. Um, when his family came to visit him, he was so messed up looking. He had dried up blood in his hair. He was just skinny as can be. And uh, the Lord led him to fast in the midst of all this. Imagine that. For 75 days, or was it 74? 74 days. No food, no drink, nothing for 74 days. He became 66 pounds, like a bag of bones and flesh. But through this time, the Lord gave him favor, gave him strength. He wouldn't say a word to his oppressors. And eventually, all the people in his cell became Christians. People who were persecuting him became Christians. Uh, he became a leader in the cell. was given favor with the authorities in the cell. They let him even read his Bible. And uh, he began to regain the strength. But it's just amazing to me the things that he went through. And uh, before they started getting saved, he, you know, he was he was urinated on. He was thrown into feces all the time. This was happening. Thrown into septic tanks, and they just and he started they, they started getting skin disease in this in his cell. And everyone in here got it except for him. And he is the one that should have gotten it. It's all the things that were happening to him. All the things that were being put upon his skin. He didn't get it. And everyone they all saw it. They all knew. And the one who treated him the worst in the cell got it the worst. And uh, they and the people in the cell, still in the midst of this disease, they hated him, so they put him next to the person who was worst to try to get him to get it some more. And he still didn't get it. And so God supernaturally protected him from getting it. So martyrdom does the exact opposite, usually, what the devil wants it to do. Now, there are people, don't think this is automatic for you, friends. There are people who do depart from the faith. And so you need to not love your life unto death. You need to lose your life for Christ's sake and for the Gospels. Okay, so in verse 19, so I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does this mean? Very interesting phrase here. Um, some Roman Catholics would associate it with Isaiah 22. Let's turn there for a second. <coughs> now notice in 
in that passage in Matthew, it says keys of the kingdom. Isaiah 22 is a passage that this Roman Catholic debate listened to try to say this is what Jesus is referring to. Isaiah 22 and verse 22. <clears throat> the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Now, you can only be talking about one person here. Singular person here, singular key. Here's the first problem. We're talking about a singular key in Isaiah 22. And Matthew 16 is keys. And here's the other problem you're going to have with this, if you're a Roman Catholic trying to say that Jesus is referring back to Isaiah 22 and Matthew 16. You're going to have a problem with Revelation chapter 3. In verse 7, where Jesus is speaking here to one of the churches, to the faithful church in Philadelphia. It's basically a direct quote of it. And to the angel or the messenger of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says, He who is holy, he who is true. Who's that talking about? Jesus. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. So who has the key of David according to Revelation 3.7, according to Jesus' words? Jesus has it. Not Peter. And guess what? Revelation was written long after Peter had died. Peter died in the 60s. This was written in the 90s. 30 years later. And so if Peter was given the keys of the kingdom, the key of David, in Matthew 16 by Jesus, and he passed it on to all his successors, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, all the popes after him, well, then I guess they didn't have it anymore by Revelation 3. By the mid-90s, they didn't have it anymore. The keys of the kingdom, this is what I think it is. What do keys do? Open doors. Lock doors. Very good, and that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in a second. But how do you, I mean, how? in what way did Peter open the door to the kingdom for people? Yeah. And he and he is speaking directly to Peter here. There's no bones about it because uh, I will give you the word "give." There, of course, "you" is singular. It's first person singular. So he's giving it to Peter. So Peter, in some sense, does have a primacy. He does have a preeminence among the apostles. And you see this in the Book of Acts. Who's the person to preach on the day of Pentecost? Who's the first person to reach the Gentiles? Cornelius. Yeah. Acts chapter eight. Peter reaches Cornelius, the first person to reach the Gentiles. He's, he's a spokesperson for them. So he has a preeminence in some way. He's given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and he's talking to only Peter here, but we see in Matthew 18, just probably one page over in your Bible, you see that the result of having the keys, this binding and loosing thing, was again said to all of the apostles in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 15. More, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him become to you like a heathen and a tax collector. I surely say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth... 
concerning anything that they ask, be done for them by my Father in heaven, for two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. So, here's another way that the kingdom can be, we talked about how it can be opened, preaching of the gospel, how can it be closed? Church discipline. This brother won't hear one person, he won't hear two or three, he won't even hear the whole church. So he's like the first Corinthians 5 man who's sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul turned him over to who? Yeah. And so they've closed the door to these people until they repent at least. They're to be treated like a heathen and a tax collector. As if they're not a Christian at all. And so the, key, the, kingdom, the keys to the kingdom, they open the kingdom by the preaching of the gospel. It's not as if the Pope can arbitrarily say, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. I mean, that's not what it's saying here. That's what the, the Roman Catholics might have you believe, because somehow the Pope has some kind of primacy or some kind of authority in that way. But we see all the apostles were given this authority. So Peter had some kind of primacy or preeminence here. John chapter 20, we see the same thing. <clears throat> so after Jesus has already risen from the grave, John 20, appears to his disciples in verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And that's exactly what I think we're talking about here. Matthew 18, Matthew 16, John 20, all combined to give us a complete truth of what he's talking about here. That the kingdom is opened by the preaching of the gospel. And by someone receiving the gospel, you can say your sins are forgiven. By someone rejecting the truth and continuing in their sin, you can confront them, bring two or three more, and they bring the whole church, and if they don't receive it, the kingdom is shut to them. The kingdom is shut to them. And so these keys were originally given to Peter, I think as a, as a way of showing his primacy, his preeminence among the apostles, but then it was two chapters later, I don't know how much longer it was chronologically later, but Matthew 18 is given to all the apostles, and John 20 the same thing. And so we see that the, king, the keys to the kingdom of heaven are given to them. Uh, what another example besides 1 Corinthians 5 that you can see of this, you can see it um, when the Simon, the former sorcerer, comes to Peter in the book of Acts and says I want, he wanted to buy the gift of the, this power to heal. And he told him that he was, you have no part, or part, you have no part or, or portion in this. He's basically, the kingdom is shut to you, you need to repent. And Simon, he, he was humble, and he said, pray for me, these things won't happen to me. Hopefully he actually repented. <clears throat> so we see the binding and loosing and what that actually means. And we see what this keys to the kingdom is. Um, so the binding and loosing has to do with forgiveness of sins or not. And one thing I want to point out to you here is that in verse 19 it says, will be bound in heaven, or whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's I don't think that's actually the proper order here, and the Greek is hard to translate into English because it's in the, the perfect. And really, I think a more proper way, and I've commentators, a lot of commentators agree with this, is to say, will have been bound, will have been loosed. So there's simply, the, Peter or the apostles would simply be declaring what had already been done. 
So you're not declaring your sins are forgiven, and then they are actually are forgiven then, after you've told them their sins are forgiven. You're not saying your sins aren't forgiven, and then their actually sins aren't forgiven. It's already, they already have repented, and they're just declaring what has happened, the loosing of the forgiveness of sins, or they're declaring by the person's actions that they have not been forgiven of their sins, has not been loosed. So just to reiterate this again, Here's how I think it should properly be translated for verse 19. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been bound in heaven. So that, I think that gives us the proper order here. Okay, Peter and the other apostles will be declaring what they're seeing, what is taking place. Because when you preach the gospel, you share the truth with somebody, they have a response to make. And according to the response, you can respond then and say, well, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. So that's what I think he's, re- he's referring to here. <clears throat> so in verses 18 and 19, um, do you see anywhere in these verses Peter being called the only or the main leader of the church, or that everyone who succeeded him would become the main leader of the church? or that Peter is the representation of Christ on earth, or that Peter is the the leader at Rome, the church of Rome. Did we see any of that in verses 18 and 19? I don't see it. But this is one of the main passages they use to prove the papacy. And, and beyond all this, if we were to even look at history, the word papa or pope was not even used of the bishop of Rome, until the 6th century, the 500s of John the First, Okay? Uh, and there's, there's even question as to... John the yes. John the yes. Yeah. And um, so that, just looking at history, we see that the, even the word Pope was not even used to them. Now the concept of bishop of bishops really came about in, in the time of the emperor. And the emperor wanted his bishop, because he, they kind of, the church and the government joined together, and the government wanted the head bishop of the church to be where he was. And so he was called the bishop of bishops. That was a little earlier on, but the word pope or papa wasn't even used until the 6th century of them. And then there's questions as to whether uh, Peter was even the, the founder of the Church of Rome. Okay? Um we see in Romans chapter 1, let's go to Romans 1, we'll see, this is Paul's letter to the Romans, church at Rome, or the, the, the disciples at Rome, the believers at Rome. <clears throat> so there's believers already here who he's writing to. In verse 7, to all who in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. So he's writing to the saints of Rome, there's already saints there. Um, and then in verse uh, 9, sorry, verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if by some means, now at last, I may come, may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. Now I not want, do not want you to be... Unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you, also just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, 
both to wise and to unwise. So as much as, as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So Paul wanted to preach the gospel to them. Now why am I even bringing that up? Let's go to Romans chapter 15 and verse 20. And let's see if Peter was the founder of this church, if Peter had been there yet or not. In verse, 15, uh, verse 20 of Romans 15, uh, Paul is saying, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should be built on another man's foundation. But as it is written, To whom he, he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. So Paul wanted to visit Rome. And uh, he was planning to visit Rome, but he would not go where other apostles had gone because he didn't want to build upon the, what they, work they had already done. He wanted to go places where other apostles had not been. So he's writing to the Church of Rome, probably in the 50s A.D. The apostle Peter had not even gotten there yet. And the question becomes, who got there first? All their early church fathers will say, well, this is the church founded by Paul and Peter. And so we don't even know if he was the, he was the first one there. We know that Paul wrote Philippians from Rome in jail. And he said at the end of, at the end of Philippians that uh, everyone had deserted him except for a couple people. And I mean, he didn't name Peter. There's a couple people who didn't desert him. So I wonder if Peter had even gotten there yet by then. Because I, I surely I don't think Peter deserted Paul. So this question as to whether uh, who was the first one to get there. Um... The first bishop of, of Rome was named Linus. And uh, I think, who was it there? That, I think it was Philippians that mentions him. I'm right. I didn't write this down. I should have. Well, I'll let you look it up. Linus is the first one. But usually you'll see it either at the beginning or the end of the epistle that, that Paul will mention people who are with him. But the first bishop of Rome was named Linus. The third bishop was named Clement. The second one was named Anacletus. Those are the first three. And we have Clement of Rome's writings. He's one of the early church fathers' writings. But here's some other reasons why I believe Peter couldn't be the first pope. Go to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. So I'm giving you some reasons now, other reasons besides Matthew 16, not saying what the Roman Catholic Church says it says. Um, let's go to First Peter 5 and see if Peter considers himself the main leader of the church who everyone's going to submit to and all his successors are going to be the leaders as well. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and the witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of life, crown of glory, does not fade away. Who's the chief shepherd that's going to appear? So Peter's not the chief shepherd? He's a fellow shepherd. And he kind of puts himself on the same level as all the other elders when it comes to authority. He's not putting himself above them. He's not saying, I'm the bishop of all of you. Listen to me. Do whatever I say. He's saying, I'm among you. I'm a fellow elder. And verse 4 is another good verse that, that, that says that when Christ appears, all the church will be raised. You'll receive the crown of glory when the chief shepherd appears. That's when you receive the crown of glory. Not later on. 
Uh, and then we can look at Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem. Now, surely, if he is the leader of the whole church, he should be the leader of every council. And everyone should submit to him and what he says, and do what he says. And we see this whole issue is based upon these, these Jews coming behind Paul's preaching and Barnabas' preaching and telling the Gentiles they need to be circumcised to be saved. And in Acts 15, you know, Peter speaks up, <clears throat> and Paul speaks up. And uh, in verse 13, after they had become silent, James answered... And which James is this? The half-brother of Jesus, yes. Not the, not the brother of John, who was martyred, but the half-brother of Jesus. So he answered them, and then in verse, in verse 19, uh, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those who are among the Gentiles who are turning to God. So he's making a judgment. He's making the answer about the situation. He's the one who's writing this letter. Now the letter comes with the authority of the apostles, the elders, and the whole church, according to verse 22. But James is the main leader here. And according to church history, James was the first bishop of, Rome, of uh, Jerusalem. The half-brother of Jesus. And so Peter wasn't even the bishop of, of Jerusalem. Now, history tells us that he was the bishop of Antioch. The first bishop of Antioch. But Antioch is not Rome. Antioch is not Jerusalem. Antioch is not the seat of the whole church, as the Roman Catholic Church says. But he was the bishop of Antioch. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, in verse 14, <clears throat> you see that the uh, Philip the deacon goes and preaches, and miracles and signs of wonders done, people get saved. In verse 14, now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Now, when was the last time anyone sent the Pope anywhere? No one sends the Pope, he sends people. But it says here that Peter and John were sent. Now, they were sent by the other apostles. But Peter is like the, the main guy. Shouldn't the rest of the apostles just be listening to him? Shouldn't he be sending people out? So there's another reason why I think that Peter could not be the first pope. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 7, we see that uh, when Paul is talking about himself, his calling, and Peter's calling, that Peter was called to preach the gospel to who? To the circumcised. That was his main thing. Now, he did reach the Gentiles too, but his main thing was the circumcised, the Jews. Well, Paul's main thing was the Gentiles. <clears throat> now, the Pope is the Pope of a whole church, Jews and Gentiles. He's the Pope to everybody, the Pope of everybody. So another reason why I don't think he could be the, the first Pope. Um... And then we see in verse... Now, in verse 9, most of the, in the, writings, of the writings of the Gospels, the Apostles, in the, in the Gospels, we see that in almost, I think, every list that gives a list of the Apostles, who's the first person? Peter's the first person almost every time. So the cats will point and say, look, Peter's the first person, the first person. He's the head of everybody. And we see in verse 9 that he is named second. First person name is James, who's the bishop of Jerusalem, who Paul went to talk to, James, Cephas, who is Peter, and John. And then, of course, we see in verses 11 through 15 that who does Peter, the supposed pope, get rebuked by? The Apostle Paul. Could you imagine one of the cardinals coming to the pope in Rome and rebuking him? Could you imagine that happening? I don't, it doesn't happen. Uh, 
the Pope doesn't get he, he's like the he's the vicar of Christ. He's the representation of Christ in there supposedly. So he tells everyone what to do and what to believe. That's all there is to it. He doesn't get rebuked by people. So the go ahead, brother. Yeah, but I'm talking about people who are submitted to this church, Roman Catholic Church. They don't. They don't. I mean, I obviously would rebuke him too. But people in the Roman Catholic Church who are in this system, who they believe the Pope's the head and they're succeeded from Peter, um, you know, they don't rebuke him. So, but Paul rebuked him. And, you know, and, and in early church fathers' writings, their version of apostolic succession goes like this. It does not go, Peter was the head guy, he's the Pope. Whoever is the leader at Rome is the bishop over all the churches, all, all the bishops in the world. It doesn't work like that. Apostolic succession in the Bible says that the apostles appointed elders, or had people appoint elders at time. Titus did that. Paul had Titus appoint elders. And then they carried on the teaching of the apostles. And from carrying on the teachings of the apostles, they were performing apostolic succession. That's apostolic succession, according to the early church fathers. That's biblical, if you ask me. Sorry, the apostolic succession that the early church fathers believed in, and I agree with, is that the apostles and people that they appointed appointed elders, bishops, overseers of churches. They carried on the traditions and teachings of the apostles. And as long as those things were carried on, we have apostolic succession. Now, if there comes a time where a bishop at Rome or somewhere else goes astray, is he still in apostolic succession? And, and we have writings from Cyprian and from another guy who I can't remember off the top of my head now, Vermillion, I think his name is, Vermillion, who are bishops who were rebuking a bishop in Rome named Stephen who was allowing heretics to come into the church. And they were rebuking him for it. And he was trying to assert authority, like, I'm the bishop of Rome, I can do whatever I want, and they were rebuking him for it. And this is in the 3rd century, around the 250s. <clears throat> so that's apostolic succession, according to the early church fathers, and, that's, and I agree with that. And here's the problem with the Roman Catholic Church. They're no longer in apostolic succession as a whole. They're not carrying on the teachings of the apostles. They're carrying on the corrupt teachings of Augustine and corrupt popes who've come along and have pushed this aside and said, well, our traditions are just as important as the Bible. Or our traditions determine the Bible, so therefore the traditions are more important than the Bible. But what do the traditions of men do, according to the Bible? They nullify the power of the Word of God in your life. That's exactly what's happened to the Roman Catholic Church. You come to them with the Word of God, say, so, no, 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 no I, don't, I don't believe that. I, I, the, the Pope, he's the guy i got to look to now. My priest, he's the guy I look to, the guy who's molesting little children. That's what I look to. Well, you look to Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. So that's what you see. That, that's biblical apostolic succession. I would agree with that. Okay. And so we see that Peter, going on here, we see that Peter, uh, or Jesus, talks about his death to his disciples. It's really the first time he's talking about this to them. The first time. And Peter has a uh, foot-to-mouth reaction about this. And Jesus rebukes him. And this is the same rebuke I use at times when someone in the open air tried to tell me to stop preaching. I mean, been professing Christian, you need to stop preaching. Well, get behind me, Satan. You're trying to stop me from doing God's will. 
you don't have God's will in mind. You have man's will in mind. Your will. Because you don't like the, the people who are getting anger at the, te- at the preaching. And you don't want to be associated with me because I'm giving you a bad name. And therefore you have your will in mind, not God's will in mind. And Jesus tells them, after saying that death or Hades will not have victory, will not prevail against the church, he tells them this. Now, just the disciples he's talking to now. He's talking to some unsaved people here. He's talking to disciples. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever desires to lose his life for my sake will find it. Of course, the Mark 8 passage is, and the gospel will find it. For profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For a son of man will come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then he will roar each one according to his works. So speaking to disciples, they're saying that the church will not be prevailed against, will not, uh, the death and haste will have victory against the church. He says, listen, if you want to be part of the church, if you want to come after me, if you, you have to follow me and take up your cross and deny yourself, and cross in the instrument of death. You know, Leonard Raymond, I've always remember this quote in the back of my mind. One, he talking about Tozer, Aiden Tozer now. He, one thing he said, he said, one thing he knew about a man who was walking out of the sea with a cross on his back. He wasn't coming back. He said, we need to put our hand to the plow and not look back. Um, otherwise, death will prevail against us. The threat of martyrdom will prevail against us. The threat of persecution will prevail against us. The threat of losing family members and friends will prevail against us. Because we're loving our life. Instead of losing our life. But in losing our life, we find it. And, you know, most there's no one in the world who would gain the whole world by giving up Jesus. So that's hyperbole there. But men give up Jesus for such small things. For the approval of man, the approval of the world, the, the peace, the peace to have with the world. That little bit of searing of the flesh. I read about this this guy Yana. And just I I need to check myself. I'm not sure if I can go through that right now. What he's going through. It amazes me. And so we need to gird ourselves. I mean, we're we're here in this in America where it's so easy to be a Christian here. So easy to be a Christian here, comparatively speaking. Probably the easiest place in the world to be a Christian is right here in America. And that could be a dangerous thing for us. Because you get so, you get so. oh yeah, this is easy, no big deal. Even go out and preach. You may experience a little bit of persecution, a little bit of uh, pushing, a little bit of spinning or something like that, but it's nothing. And we really need to check ourselves because there's probably going to come a time, friends. I'm sure we'll, this generation will live through it. Sometimes I, I hope I don't have to live through it. I really do. Well, I hope that. Um, but, you know, no matter what it is you gain, you're not going to gain the whole world. And even if you could gain the whole world, it's not worth it to exchange your soul for that. But it won't profit you in the end. And, of course, verse 27, one of the benefits of losing your life is you get rewarded for it. It's okay to have that as one of your motivations. It shouldn't be the primary one, but it should be one of them. She talks about it all the time. Do not store yourself treasures in earth, but in heaven. That's what we should be doing. And it seems to me that, I mean, he says right after he rebukes Peter, it seems to me it's a warning to Peter, who's gonna, he knows he's going to fall away. And 
Guess who else is in the midst of this way saying this? Judas. He hasn't betrayed him yet. <laughs> so hopefully you can see from this passage that it's not teaching what Roman Catholics say is teaching. And I think it's very clearly saying something different. Uh, even if you were to not say it's not giving a plan of words there, um, the rock of the church is Jesus Christ. He's the chief cornerstone and no one else. He's the rock in the wilderness who they got water from. He's the rock we get our living water from. Okay, we'll stop there. Does anyone have <coughs> questions or things they want to add? <coughs> what said? I know that uh, in the military, I always like to think back to my military experience. Yeah. The military, having keys means having authority. Yeah. The more keys you have, the more authority you have. You have the keys to armory, you have the keys to the depot, you have the keys right. to this, the keys to the money, the keys to this, that, so uh, I think very much so in that in that passage certainly could apply to authority. Yeah, it definitely does. There's lots of authority, the apostles, not just Peter, but all the apostles, there's lots of authority. Yep. Going out preaching and establishing churches and saying you know, God's word. Uh, people grow in that. And more authority equals more responsibility. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I would say I would agree with that. I mean, that's one point I didn't really bring into it, but keys, I mean, back in those days, if you were given the key to the castle or where the king stayed, you're, it was put on you, and you were one of the top people. Key to the jail. Yeah, key to the jail. I mean, these are important things. You know, and now I'll get 16, I'll be given the key to the car. I might. <laughs> now he's got more responsibility. I, I'm... We're going to assume he's mature enough by then and that he's his character as well. And But if it isn't, guess what? I'm not going to give it to him yet. If they can prove himself that he's ready for it. And uh, obviously because they professed what they professed. Peter professing it literally and all the apostles agreeing with it. He saw they were ready for this. They saw who he was. That's just opposite of what the world teaches. This kind of goes along your children's Children act disobedient, cry out and get what they want. Yep. Parents give them what they want. Instead of them proving themselves being obedient, then they get more responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, to get them to shut up. You hear them in Walmart sometimes. We'll be, you know, going through Walmart, doing our grocery shopping, and you hear this kid screaming, and Eli say, "Jesus, bacon," and then and then we'll be riding through, and and she gives in eventually, and the person, the, the the parent gives in and gives it to them, and they just to get them to be quiet. <laughs> right. It's really hard to tell her point her where they were. Right. I really want to be like you're hurting him yourself because you're, you're teaching him to do this next time. He Early on, you're making this. You're making it harder. You're making your own problem. Yeah. Well, the same thing next time you come to the store. Right. Yep. Developing a pattern early on. Do Do you think that in the midst of Peter's Rejection of Jesus three times. They still have the keys at that point in time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's that's another argument you could use about this. It goes back to the same David argument. People say David was mad at the God's own heart. That was said at the very beginning when he was chosen to be king. Then he assumed with Bathsheba and Uriah, etc. And they said, well, he's still mad at the God's own heart in the midst of that. No, he's not. Yeah. 
So. Yeah, a soldier who goes AWOL, they're not going to reward him. They're going to demote him. I saw it over and over again. I worked in the finance and promotion department. You saw people go from E6 down to E3 or E4. People go from E4 to E1. Their pay went down. Their authority went down. They were reduced to KP, kitchen patrol, you know, dishes. They were reduced to you know, mopping the floor and sweeping the floor. Um, you know, But I saw as I rose up in my rank and my favor with the people I was under, they gave me more responsibility. I went from doing awards, doing promotions, and doing orders, and doing finances, and then I became the head of people who were over those things. So I was increasing in my responsibility and my maturity in those areas. That's the same way we're for Jesus Christ. <coughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, you go to jail. Kingdom of America. It's not coming from a negative, it's coming from a positive source. Oh, oh, okay. I don't know. That's what Roman Catholics said. I mean, they, they could be lying about it, I suppose. But, I mean, I, I, that's still 6th century, that's 500 years. I, I put this in the first one. He reigned uh, during Pelagius' time, I think. I said Pope Innocent the First. I think reigned during Pelagius' time. Oh, really? Yeah, I think he's the one that cleared Pelagius of uh, being a heretic after the Pope had died. I could be wrong about that. Maybe I'm getting crossed up. But <clears throat> either way, 600 years or 500 years after Jesus said this is a long time to first use the term and then go back and say, well, Peter was the first Pope. Pelagius and Augustine was, was the 400s, right? Yeah. So that'd be earlier. So the Roman Catholic source is giving us a later date. If if I'm right about it, that's when Pope Innocent I leave. <coughs> so. I, want, I wanted to read this, but it doesn't have really anything to do with this. But Okay. This is the Jack Chick thing? This is the Jack Chick thing. Okay. This is uh, it's talking about Rome and Babylon. and The solution was in Rome. The religion had come from ancient Babylon, and all it needed was a facelift. But this didn't happen overnight. It took time. The church started in the writings of the so-called early church fathers. Jack Chick um, disparages the early church fathers as well. Well, it depends on who he means by that. Right. I, I mean, people sometimes think the post-Nicene fathers are the... I mean, that's, that's, you hear James White talk in this debate I was listening to. He quoted John Christ and Augustine as early church fathers. And so they, they, they're the ones before that. I mean, Christ is in the 4th and 5th century, 
and Augustine's fourth, uh, fourth and fifth century too. And so he's skipping over all the other guys who are really the early church fathers, the Antonicene fathers before 325 AD. So it depends on who he's talking about. If he's talking about the post-Nicene, I would agree with him for the most part. Even the term Pontifus Maximus was given. It was originally given to the chief priest of the pagan uh, religion in Rome. And then we have, I think, around 1000 AD, is starting to be applied to the Pope at Rome. That tells you a lot, doesn't it? You see a lot of the symbology in the Roman Catholic Church. The symbols they use yeah. goes right back to Babylon. Yeah. LDS Church, same thing. Yeah. You see the same symbols on the exterior of their temples. Right. The same symbols going all the way back to Babylon and Nimrod. Simramus. Yeah, and what happened at Tower of Babel? God... Uh, you know, confusion, and he he can he judged them for that. So. Speaking of the Babylon thing, I was going to ask you. First um, Peter. Uh, By Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly. Exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, you let together with who greets you. And so does Mark, my son. But Babylon there, uh, that doesn't refer to ancient Babylon. No, well, it's referring to the area of Babylon uh, where I believe Peter went and preached to the Jews there. Yeah, that's what it's referring to there. Really? No. If you look at it, uh, 1 Peter 1, it says, uh, verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So he's talking about people who are dispersed, the Jewish people who are dispersed in these areas. And I always understood that to mean that the elect, the Jewish people who are in that area of Babylon, he actually went and preached to them. Uh, and, of course, she is the church there. Uh, she and elect are the same thing in verse 13. She was in Babylon, elect, together with you, greet you. And so does Mark, my son. So it seems like he went there and came back. <clears throat> I mean, that's what I thought it meant. I, I never thought that'd be Rome. Uh, I know Revelation kind of goes back and forth with that. Yeah. Interesting, I never thought about it like that. Right. Sure. 
they're interpreting it like that, that then it contradicts Jesus saying, you know, if you repent, forgive him. Or, you know, 77 times, 70 times 7. That would contradict that whole view that they try to say something like that, because that means that you can just be unforgiving towards people. If I want to, I can just be unforgiving towards you, and then you're going to go to hell because of that. Yeah. They they usually try to use that to say that, that the priest can forgive and right. yeah give out forgive sins or not, <clears throat> but I, I think going back to Matthew, I have to look at the Greek in this see if it's in the uh, the perfect tense there as well. If it is, then it would be the same situation. Yeah, I didn't look at that uh, in my studies, but I know that Matthew sixteen that's the way it is, and so and so if Matthew sixteen is that way, why would you just reverse it now all of a sudden? So yeah, I'll have to look at that see if it's in the perfect or not. But you see them doing this. You see 1 Corinthians 5. Paul turns that guy over to Satan. You see uh, Peter dealing with Simon the sorcerer. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, another one. Uh, chapter 5. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3. Verse uh, 14. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person... And do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so even then, you're making a judgment call about these issues here. Uh, going back to Matthew 18, once again, this church discipline issue, treating him as if he's not forgiven of his sins. Because repentance is required to be forgiven. The you know, only sin is forgiven of is sin is repented of. So. Right. Right. God, God is very, I mean, all throughout the Gospels, God is very, Jesus has already said how one attains forgiveness of sins. And so they're simply declaring whether the person is forgiven or not based upon their response to the message of the truth. That's what you see all throughout the book of Acts. You never see in the book of Acts them saying, okay, you're forgiven of your sins, you're not forgiven of your sins, just arbitrarily doing it. You never find that. So for them to interpret that way would go against what we see in the book of Acts, which is them living out what you just told them. Right. That's to be healed, though. I'm not sure that's not talking about forgiveness. Yeah, that's probably... Sure. Right. And it's also saying to one another, not to some priest or some leader, but to one another. That's right. We're all living stones, a royal priesthood. As, as Peter says, a holy priesthood, First Peter two five. But that, I mean, that's if that's all the Roman Catholics have to support this doctrine of the papacy. It's pretty shallow. I think what they have more than anything is the corruption of this issue by the Church in the fourth, fifth, sixth century. That's what, you, that's what they have more than anything. And they're holding on to these traditions, and then they go from that tradition and try to seek it in the Word of God, and they try to you know, find it that way. This guy who James White was to bay, his name is Jerry Mattatix, and he used to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church. He was the first minister in the Presbyterian Church to go over to a Roman Catholic. He became a Roman Catholic. He came yeah, he came home, yeah, to the whore. Uh, but <clears throat> he studied at Westminster... Uh, seminary, everything. He went through all of it. And he rejected Calvinism for Roman Catholicism. Uh, they're not much different. Uh, 
Augustine's the father of both of them, if you ask me. Right. So, <clears throat> I don't. I didn't think. I mean, James White did okay, but I don't think he did that good in the debate. He could have done a lot better. So, there's lots of points he just didn't. He's like kind of skipped over them. So, anybody else? <clears throat>